morning, good morning. So good to be with y'all today. I want to just add my voice to the, uh, welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time. Got a chance to meet a couple of you before service, but in case I didn't, my name is Ryan. I have the blessing of serving as one of the pastors here at Awaken. And today I've got the honor of preaching from the book of Malachi as we finish this incredible and surprising sermon series. Now, I say incredible and I say surprising because I think for most of us, honestly, we had never really thought that much about the book of Malachi, right? We either didn't know it existed, or if we did, we probably just sort of breezed through it on the way to the New Testament, right? No shame. Like, I think we've all been there. I've heard from so many of you how impactful this series has been. Because I think as we've dove deeper into this dialogue between God and his people, we've come to learn just how deep and how convicting this book really is. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we've also come to this realization that we aren't that much different from the Israelites in Malachi's day, right? That we too have a tendency to, to cheat God with our worship or to neglect him in our relationships or to rob him with our offerings. And so I think that's why many of us find ourselves here today on the final sermon in this series Seven weeks in, we're in the last chapter, the last six verses in this book, and I think we're hoping, we're expecting that this is all going to sort of wrap up nice and neat, right? That's what we, we want. We want this assurance that even though we have done these things to turn from God, that in the end, it's all going to turn out okay. And if you know the book of Malachi, it comes right before the New Testament, and so really, if you think about the people in Malachi's day, this was the end of, of their book. And I don't know about you, but if you guys read, you sort of start to get to the end of a book sometimes. If it's a good book and there's some suspense, some drama in there, you start to realize and maybe even start to get a little bit uh, anxious when those pages start to wear thin, don't you? Anybody ever experienced that? You start to get in like, there's only 10 pages left here. How are they going to wrap all this up? Right? When is the hero going to come and save the day? What is that happily ever after ending going to be? Well, the problem is here in the book of Malachi, there is no big payoff. Right? We're going to see here in a moment that there is no neat and tidy happy ending. Because as the suspense and as the drama really reaches its peak here in chapter 4, the book just ends. It ends with questions that are left unanswered, with promises, prophecies that are left to be fulfilled. And again, for the people of Malachi's day, there were no more words to read. Right? This was it. In fact, the voice of God is going to go silent, leaving his people to wonder which side of eternity they're going to end up on. Right? Throughout the book, we've seen glimpses into heaven, glimpses into hell. Glimpses into God's grace and into his justice. And the people of God, they're in this uncertain and uneasy place, and God's going to lead them there for over 400 years. You think you've been waiting a long time to hear from the Lord. Over 400 years, these final words that we're about to read, they're living rent-free in the minds of God's people. And if these words are the ones that God wanted echoing out over his people for over 400 years, well then, I'm guessing they probably carry a significant impact for us even here today. As we wrestle with that question of which side of eternity we will end up on. So we're going to look at those words together here in just a moment. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can go ahead and pull those out now. Again, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Before we jump into God's word, though, let me say a quick word of prayer. 
Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we are just so grateful. Lord, you are simply too good to us. I want to praise you, Lord, for the things that you have been doing here in our church family, Lord, in the hearts of your children, the ways that you have been transforming lives, calling your people back to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to do more of the same as you speak to your people now through your word. Lord, we give you this time. We give you our lives. We ask that you would move through both. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. It says this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And just like that, y'all, the Old Testament comes to an end, right? Not with some sort of neat and tidy, happy ending, but really with a, a cliffhanger of eternal proportions, what a cliffhanger, right? Are God's people, are they destined to face the judgment of hell or will they experience the joy of heaven, right? You can feel that uncertainty, right? And to add to it, there's an urgency that God stresses here because he's gonna give them a glimpse into the grand finale, into that last day saying, hey, this is what it is going to look like. This is where you are headed. And here's God's intent with doing this. It's not to pressure his people, but when he shows them the uncertainty that's in their hearts and the urgency with which the day of the Lord is coming, is he's trying to get them to act, right? In his grace, he's trying to get them, hey, get off of the fence. Stop living this half-hearted life. Make a decision to put your trust finally and fully in me. So he stresses this urgency saying, hey, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, for those of you who maybe have, aren't familiar with apocalyptic literature like this, the day of the Lord, it points to exactly that, right? The apocalypse, the, the judgment day, right? That's why all those fiery clues are in there, right? A lot, of, a lot of hellfire and brimstone in this one. It's actually a fitting conclusion for this book because really the people of Malachi, as if you've been with us this whole time, they've been acting as if God essentially doesn't exist, right? Or if he does exist, then it really doesn't have that big of an impact on their lives, but what God does in, in painting this vivid picture for them is he's trying to graciously wake his people up to the fact that he does exist yeah. and that their actions mean more than simply what they might produce in the moment, right? That what they do here and now will impact their eternity. Yeah. Reminds me of a, a story I heard a little while back about a farmer up in the Midwest and this farmer, he didn't care too much for Christians. In fact, when he was out plowing his field on Sundays, he would sort of shake his fist at the cars that were driving by on their way to worship. But one October came, and this farmer, he actually had his biggest and his best crop ever. It was the biggest and best crop in the entire county. And so this gave the farmer an idea, right? After the money from the harvest came in, he actually put out an ad in the town paper, right? And his focus, he said, I'm going to belittle those silly Christians. 
And so he wrote this, this pointed little article, and then at the end he said, hey, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. Well, I'm glad to tell you the Christians in the community, right, they didn't respond with hate. They were quiet. They were polite. But in the next issue of the town paper, a small ad appeared, and it simply read, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. God doesn't settle his accounts in October. Now, that's a, a playful illustration, but what it does is it clues us into a painful reality. That those who find their security in what they have here and now, they may experience abundance and blessing. But the reality is that's the closest they will ever get to heaven. A day is coming, says the Lord, when that false sense of security is going to be stripped away. And for those who have little concern over where they're going, those who have put their trust in the ways of the world and not in God, this is not going to be a good day for them. Right? Because for those who have put their trust in the world, God promised them the judgment of hell. If you're taking notes this morning, that's actually point number one. Super optimistic look this morning, the judgment of hell. We get a description of that judgment in verse 1, where it says this, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, then this image of a fire should probably sound familiar to you. Right, we talked just a couple of weeks ago about the refining fire and about how Jesus sits and he patiently and intentionally removes all of our impurities. Well, this is not that same type of fire, right, in case you didn't pick that up. This is the fire more of an incinerator. It's the fire that is meant to destroy whatever is placed inside of it. And just to be honest, this is the kind of fire that none of us like to talk about, right? I mean, I've yet to hear a Maverick City song where they talk about, you know, the evildoers being burnt to stubble doesn't exactly, you know, get all the popularity on the airwaves. And yet we need to realize that this type of fire is just as real of a reality as the refining fire is. Right? That just as God promises the refining fire for those who fear him, he promises the destructive fire of an incinerator for those who don't. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know we talked about some, some qualities of that refining fire. I want to do the same just really quickly here with this fire. The first thing I want to point out is the scope of this fire. God makes it clear that his judgment will include all of the arrogant and the evildoers. In other words, no one who has pridefully turned from him will be able to escape this judgment. So we've got the scope. We've also got the finality of the fire. That not only will this come on all who have turned from God, but that there will be no chance of surviving it. No root, no branch, no nothing. This is a total and final judgment. But the third, and I believe maybe the most important aspect of this fire that I want to point out to you is the focus of the fire. See, this is not some sort of out-of-control wildfire. It's a fire that's contained, and it is purposeful. It's not some revenge-driven or, or careless act like some people might make it out to be. In fact, this fire is actually a, a perfect picture of both God's justice and his grace. It's him saying true to his word to punish the wicked while also showing them grace in the fact that he's giving them everything that they ever wanted. He's giving them the separation that they wanted from him. What we see in this image, family, what I want you to understand is that God is both gracious and just. He has to be both, right? You can't have one without the other because true love, it requires justice. This is the irony in the judgment of hell. 
This is what people outside the faith can't seem to fathom. How could a good God condemn people to hell? Well, what they don't realize is that as C.S. Lewis says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. See, what God in his grace is doing here is he's stripping away any and all false sense of security that the wicked and the rebellious might have had about where they were going, about how they were going to get there. He's trying to reveal to them, hey, these are the wicked ways. This is the path you're headed down. This is where you will wind up if you don't turn and come to me. I know it's not easy to hear. It's not easy to preach either, I promise you. But we've got to come to terms with the fact that God is both gracious and just. That's why he's going to follow that in the very next verse. Not by stripping away the security of the wicked, but by leaving security to those who fear his name. And he promises that not the judgment of hell, but the joy of heaven. That's point number two for those of you taking notes. The joy of heaven. This is what's promised those who put their trust in him. If you look back to verse two here with me in just a second, you'll see that there's another type of heat that's coming. But it's not the heat of that incinerator. It's the warmth of God's righteousness. Verse 2 says, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Man, these are some incredible images God gives. Right? They were so dark and grim when he was talking about the judgment of hell. But man, what hope-filled images he gives to those who fear his name. And I want to get to to some of that joy, but I actually want to touch on that phrase there for just a second, those who fear his name. Because I think we hear that phrase a lot, don't we, in Scripture, that we need to fear God. And to be honest, like in our context, we think of the the fact that maybe, okay, should we be scared of him? What is it supposed to look like? But that can impact our relationship with him, right? We're not supposed to be scared of God. What it means to fear God is to recognize his power, Right? To acknowledge his character and then to live in light of it. That's the simplest way I can boil it down for you. To recognize his power, to acknowledge his character, and to live in light of it. This is the healthy kind of fear. When there's a healthy, like, father-son relationship, you recognize the power that your father has. You acknowledge that he has good character, and then you simply live to please him. That's what it is to fear the Lord. And to those who fear God's name, he makes these promises. He says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can kind of pull apart this illustration of the sun of righteousness, right? It brings light where there was darkness, brings brings growth where there was decay. And I thought about a lot of those, but honestly, as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but get my mind off of uh, the freeze that we were all in six months ago. Anybody remember that? It feels hard to remember as we've been in like 30 straight days of 100 degree temperatures. But just six months ago, we were all under like a thick layer of ice. And I don't know about you, but when I looked out on my my neighborhood, when I looked out on the surrounding area, it seemed like chaos, like a war zone out there. Anybody's street look like this? Yeah, there were trees down everywhere. There was chaos. There was destruction. And there, there was only one solution. What was that one solution? It was for the sun to rise to heal and to restore the land. This is the picture that Malachi is giving to those who have been faithful. That although they may experience sickness or disease or famine or exile or persecution, that a day was coming when the righteousness of God would cover them like light, bringing that healing and that restoration. I love that this truth is captured so beautifully in one of my favorite Christmas hymns. You're probably thinking, what? 
Well, it says, Hail the heavenly born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And God is saying, this Son of Righteousness, he is coming. And when he rises, he will restore all things. That's what God's going to do. But then what are we going to do? Well, God tells us. He gives us a glimpse. He says, we will go out leaping like calves from the stall. I got to tell you, all this is one of my favorite images from this book. What a promise God gives to us. That one day when all is restored. Doesn't that look awesome? We'll be like playful and energetic cows being released to roam free and to leap in complete freedom and delight. So I was thinking on this. I thought about when I was a, a kid and I was in school. You'd feel cooped up in the classroom and then they'd release you to recess. And I would head straight for that grass field. I would do nothing but run as far and as fast as my little legs could take me. There was no fear about what was around me. There was no concern about what was going on later that day. It was complete freedom, complete joy, and complete delight. Family, this is what God promises to those who fear his name. And here's the beautiful part, right? We may not be able to experience the true fullness of that joy on this side of heaven, but we have that same freedom in Christ. We've been set free. So what that means is that even when, even if we face persecution, even when we face sickness, even when we face these things, we're still called to leap. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Family, what I believe Jesus is saying here is don't wait to start leaping. Don't wait to start leaping. Because despite the pain you might be experiencing, this is the reality that awaits you. So go ahead and leap. Your reward is already promised to you. In fact, you might as well get some, some practice in so that you're not rusty on that day when you stand before Jesus and he releases you out into that field, into that freedom, into that joy, into that delight. Family, this is where you are headed if you put your trust in Jesus. The question is, how are you going to get there? Right, this is the side of eternity that we want to end up on. The question is, how are we going to get there? Thankfully, God gives us a glimpse into how we do this. Let's look together at verses 4 through 6. God is going to reveal to us the journey we must take. That's point number three for you note takers. We have the judgment of hell, the joy of heaven, and now the journey we must take. God tells us what we are supposed to do about this. Read verses 4 through 6 with me. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him had Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God commands two things. He starts by calling his people to remember. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. He's pointing to the Ten Commandments, to the, 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 the laws and the morals that he called his people to live with. But the Hebrew word that's used here to, for the word remember is not just this idea of looking back, but it has this, this connotation of looking back and then living in light of. Right? It's a command to be reminded of something, but to act accordingly. 
Let me give you an example. This is a, a true Texan example. We've got a, a same rallying cry you've probably heard, right? Remember the Alamo. This is the call that led to an unlikely victory in the Texas Revolution. But why? Why did this lead to victory? Well, it's not because people looked at this tiny little fort in San Antonio with some sort of fondness. No, it's because they remembered the brave acts of the fellow soldiers that inspired the, the other soldiers to this similar type of courage. Right? They didn't just look back on the, the battle of the Alamo. They lived in light of the values that were displayed there. Are you tracking with me? This call to remember is not just a call to look back, but a call to live in light of. That leads to that second command he gives, which is to behold. Right? To behold is simply to, to look up. Right, to, to recognize that the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming, we should live in light of that as well. It's as if God's people are standing on a bridge. Right? They're trying to cross over this great chasm. God is saying, hey, look back on my faithfulness. Look back on my instruction. Remember those things. But then look forward with anticipation of this future that I have laid out for you. He said, this is where you're going. This is the journey you need to take. But here's the catch, family. There's always a catch, right? The catch is we can't take that journey on our own. God knew we couldn't take that journey on our own. I want you to see this. God, in his infinite wisdom, he knew how forgetful we would be. He knew how self-centered, how lazy we would be. And so even though he commands us to take this journey, to remember and to behold, he knew we wouldn't be capable of completing that journey on our own. Right? That's why he promises Elijah. That's why he promises this heart change. Not because of anything he was calling his people to do, but because of what he knew he would do for his people. See, God knew. He knew all along that he needed to step in to save his people from utter destruction. Did any of you notice that's the last word in the Old Testament? Destruction? Period. Full stop. End of chapter. End of book beginning of silence. What a way to end, right? I have to say, well, I prefer to preach from the ESV translation. I actually prefer how some of the other translations phrase this. They simply say that what God is threatening to do is to come and to strike the land with a curse. They use this word curse. This is the threat that the people of God were forced to sit with for over 400 years. That they would revisit over and over again, playing over and over again in their minds because it's the last thing that they heard from him. It's not like they knew that there was going to be another chapter, another revelation before this day of the Lord came. So imagine just for a moment that you are living in Israel at this time. How fearful and how frustrated would you feel? Right? You're well aware by now, if you've read the, the beginning part of Malachi, that you're not able to live up to the expectations of God. So you must be thinking, I don't know how to avoid this curse. Man, that's an anxiety-riddled existence, wondering Man, is God pleased with me? Am I doing enough to satisfy what he's laid out for me? All the while knowing the judgment that waits for you if he's not, that is uncomfortable. I actually learned this week that, that rabbis, they, they would go back and they would repeat verse 5 after reading verse 6 so that the last thing they didn't finish on was the word curse. But here's the thing. This is clearly the way that God wanted it. He wanted this, this threat of a curse to ring in his people's ears. Because what it did is it highlighted that this was all the old covenant would ever bring to them. Right. 
He wanted them to come to terms with the fact they could never do enough on their own to receive this blessing. They couldn't do it. They simply were unable to. They could never meet his standard. I truly believe God wanted his people to know that without him, they were destined for this curse. And for centuries, this was God's last word. Until one day. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Family, God's plan was never to curse his people, but to send his son, Jesus, the son of righteousness, to dwell among us and to take on that curse for us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took on our sin. He took on our shame. He took on our curse so that we might become the righteousness of God. Curse was never meant to be the final word because Christ was coming to write a whole new ending. Curse was never meant to be the final word. This is what Malachi, this is what God's been preaching to us through his prophet Malachi this entire time. There's someone coming. Yes, I have to be just. Yes, I have to punish, but I'm going to pour that out on my son so that you can receive my grace. So I invite the band back up. I want to just turn the attention to you. We've been talking a lot about God's people. We've been talking about the people of Israel. And I want to ask you, Where are you going? How are you going to get there? I want to draw your mind back to that image of the bridge. Because I believe for for most of us, for many of us, we don't recognize the fact that we too are on a bridge like the Israelites. Behind us, the victory of Christ over the cross, over the grave, and before us, that great and awesome day of the Lord, his triumphant return. I want to ask you, how certain are you that if that day of the Lord came today, that you would wind up on the right side of eternity? How certain are you that you would experience the joy of heaven? Like it or not, that day is coming soon, family. Whether it's when we meet our natural end or when that day of judgment comes. But the reality is we all will one day stand before the throne. And here's the thing, the joy of heaven, it's not promised to those who work the hardest. It's not promised to those who do the most. It's not promised to those with perfect attendance. It's not promised to those who who acquire the most stuff. It's promised to those who fear God's name, who remember what he has done and who live in light of it. The joy of heaven awaits those who count all else as lost for the sake of knowing, of pursuing, and of being with Jesus. Do you know where you're going? Are you confident of how you're gonna get there? That answer is no, I wanna invite you to put your trust in Jesus today. See, it's Jesus who is that bridge to heaven. It's only Jesus that could cross that chasm for us. You could never do enough on your own. On your own, you are destined for that curse. On your own, you are destined for the judgment of hell. But God in his grace sent us Jesus. I told you earlier that, that God is both just and he is gracious. He has to be both. 
which is why he poured out his justice on his son so that you might receive all of the grace. There is grace for you this morning.